Welcome to Need to Know Nutrition, the podcast that is determined to uncover the truth and set the record straight when it comes to health and nutrition facts. Today, I am thrilled to introduce to you Robert J. Davis, aka The Healthy Skeptic. Robert hails from Los Angeles in the USA and is just as determined as this podcast to uncover the truth about the health industry. Robert is an award-winning health journalist and author of four incredible books. His newest one is called Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Works. Now, I've had the pleasure of reading this book and not only is it easy to understand and very entertaining, it's also jaw-dropping. It uncovers how and why we're being led astray by the health industry and so-called weight control strategies. But Robert backs it all up with gold standard research and most importantly, the facts. No longer will we be victims to the clever marketing and falsehoods that are spoon fed to us. Thanks to Robert, we'll be finding our own success when it comes to health and weight loss. So sit back and enjoy this incredible interview with Robert. It's so great to have you on the show, Robert. Welcome. Well, thank you, Belinda. Thanks so much for having me. Now, firstly, can you tell all of our listeners about what inspired you to become a health journalist and essentially start to uncover the truth when it comes to popular health and dietary claims? Well, you know, I developed a strong interest in nutrition, health and nutrition when I was in college. And so I developed a strong personal passion for that, tried to learn as much as I could about nutrition. And then that really inspired me to become a health journalist. And as I was working as a health journalist early on in my career, I recognized how many people were trying to spin me, how many companies, food companies, medical companies, pharmaceutical companies, hospitals, you name it, anybody with a vested interest sending out press releases, trying to get me to present information in a particular way that favored their point of view. And then I also have uh, training in epidemiology and public health. So my background, I have an academic background in those fields. So I was able to use that background to actually look at the science when I'd be given these pitches and to say, okay, does what they're saying really stand up when you look at the science? Does this make sense? And I realize even more how much vested interests are twisting the truth, uh, telling us things uh, that aren't really true or exaggerating the evidence that we do have. And so that really, I think, inspired me to develop this healthy skeptic approach to my work and, and really helping consumers understand to make sense of all these claims. Because we know when it comes to nutrition, particularly, but health and wellness generally, there's so many confusing, conflicting, misleading claims. And so what I've tried to do in my work is to to look at those claims as honestly and objectively as I can, drawing on my work in epidemiology and public health and laying out the information as honestly as I can to help people make better decisions. As I see it, my role is not to help, is not to tell people what to do. That's up to individuals to decide what's best for them but it is to lay out information to help them make better decisions uh, for themselves. I love it. It's it's that beautiful education being the foundation, isn't it? Giving people the facts so they can make educated decisions about their health and nutrition. Absolutely. And everybody's going to make different decisions. What's right for me may not be what's right for you or someone else, but the point is everybody needs the same information, the same accurate information, fact-based information, so they can make the right decisions. Oh, Robert, I knew you'd be a wonderful fit for this podcast and everything we're about here. So you're off to a flying start. Now, you've actually written four books on health. Now, the latest one being Supersized Lies, How Myths About Weight Loss Are Keeping Us Fat and the Truth About What Works. 
Now, I loved this book. I read it. It's amazing. And for those who haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet, because they will once this interview is over, I just know it. Can you give us a quick rundown of what the book's about and why you felt compelled to write it? Well, you know, uh, first of all, I felt compelled to write it in part because of what I just said, because of all the misinformation I see. And, And one might argue there's no area of health and wellness that has more misinformation than weight management and weight loss. And, 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 and certainly, you know, that, that really informed my approach and also my decision to write about this. And my thesis really in this book and my overall message is that the paradox we see here is that more people are trying more and more things to manage their weight. And what are we saying? People aren't losing weight. They're actually gaining weight. We're getting more and more obese globally and certainly in the U.S. and other countries. I, I know Australia as well. And so we had this paradox that the, the more things people try, the harder they try, it seems, the, the fatter they're getting. And I argue that a lot of that has to do with the weight loss industry. This enormous industry uh, in, in the U.S. alone is worth more than $70 billion a year that uh, is giving us all this information, selling us all kinds of goods and services, telling us that if we only follow remedy, uh, this remedy or that remedy, we'll lose weight. And in fact, much of what they're peddling is not only misleading, but in some cases, harmful and counterproductive. And so what I want to do in this book is to point out to people all the things, all the ideas, all the remedies that they're being uh, hearing about that are being sold that really don't work, that some cases are counterproductive so that people can be savvier about making those decisions. And then also at the same time, laying out what really works so that people understand that it's not as complicated as we're often led to believe. It doesn't require a lot of complicated rules and regimens. Uh, It's simpler than we're led to believe, but trying to lay out what science shows really can work when it comes to successful weight management. Amazing. And I love that that is also included in the book. So not only have you sort of busted the myths in a really entertaining way, I love the way that it's written, but you've also set everybody up for success by giving them the facts or giving them the science and then almost being able to guide them on their own path. Like you said, they will make their own decisions. Everybody makes their own decisions, but I love that you've given some guidance, but used science and fact to do that. I think it's a really great um, inclusion in the book as well, Robert. So thanks for that. Now let's talk food myths and facts. I want to talk about superfoods because I love this. This comes up all the time and especially I, I see it in my work often, but I want to know myth or fact, are there foods that are more super compared to others? You know, for example, I feel like we're always talking about, you know, pink grapefruit and apple cider vinegar and goji berries. They were huge for a few years. You know, are we being, are we being sucked in by clever marketing, Robert, or do they actually have superpowers? Well, the, unfortunately, the answer is no, the, these foods do not have superpowers. And we hear this all the time. Foods, as you mentioned, there's a long list of foods that supposedly can have all kinds of amazing health benefits. And when it comes to weight, foods that are, can, can burn fat, help you lose weight, that if only you eat those foods in abundance, you'll lose more weight. And it would be very nice if it were true. It's a very alluring idea, right? That if you yeah. can eat certain <laughs> foods, if you can add uh, apple cider vinegar or eat avocado or whatever the food might be, uh, hot, hot peppers, then it will help uh, burn more fat, uh, speed up your metabolism, whatever the case may be. The truth is that many of these foods, if not most, are, can, are part of a healthful diet, can be part of a healthy diet, and they're good foods to eat. And so uh, the problem is that they are elevated from the status of part of a healthy diet into something you must eat in order to lose weight or in order to be healthy. And so, uh, you know, you hear about people forcing themselves to eat all kinds of foods they may not even like, 
uh, because they think it's going to help them in some way. And, and I think that uh, that, again, is ample something that's counterproductive because part of successful weight management, part of a healthful diet is including foods that you actually like, that you're going to eat over the long term, that you're going to enjoy, that are going to sustain you, that will fill you up. They'll be part of a diet you enjoy. And if you're forcing yourself to choke down foods you don't like, that's not a, that's not a sustainable approach. Definitely. And I hear that about apple cider vinegar often, especially from a weight loss perspective. You know, if people are trying to use it as a weight loss tool, the actual taste of apple cider vinegar, I don't know if you had it before, Robert, it's not. I, I have not, but you know, that's a great, that's, and that's a great example of how a, a very, a kernel of information can be exaggerated. So let's take that for a minute if we can. Uh, apple cider vinegar, there was, there's actually one study that's often cited, one human study was done by a Japanese vinegar manufacturer that gave, it was a trial that gave people several tablespoons of, of vinegar and, and, and there was a placebo for the other folks uh, in the control group. And they found that the people that had the apple cider vinegar, the vinegar over several months gained a few pounds less, they lost a few more pounds than the people who didn't have it. That is the only human evidence that, it, that exists really. And so everything else is either in rodents or there's some evidence that maybe it reduces uh, spikes in, in blood sugar after a meal. Uh, but again, none of it, we don't have really great evidence at all that it re results in people uh, losing weight. But yet when we hear about apple cider vinegar, it's hailed as some kind of proven remedy when it comes to weight loss. And this is exa exactly what happens with many of these superfoods. You have industry funded studies that often are small, maybe poorly designed in rodents, in test tubes, but they're put out there as definitive evidence. So the certainty of the evidence is overstated and the whatever the food is, it is turned into some kind of surefire way to lose weight when in fact the evidence doesn't really say that. Yes, this is why we need people like you, Robert. Thank you. This is why. <laughs> now, there's thousands of websites that advocate certain diets that use time as their main tool. And I'm really interested uh, in your answer to this question, you know, like the big popular ones like the five and two diet or the warrior diet. Um, and in your book, you talk about the werewolf diet. Mm -hmm. so I'm interested to know, is the timing of what and when you eat important when it comes to weight loss or weight management? Well, the truth is that there is very interesting research, emerging research, that our circadian rhythm, that's our, our internal clock, can ha may have an effect when it comes to how we metabolize food. For example, it's possible that we burn more calories if we eat earlier in the day than later in the day. Uh, blood sugar regulation may be different in the morning versus night, which may have some effect on, say, fat accumulation. That said, we don't have great evidence that any of these diets that plan your meals around a certain time or a certain time frame will result in weight loss. Let's take, for example, the 5-2 diet. It's also known as intermittent fasting. Um, the idea behind that is if you restrict your eating to certain periods of time or to certain days, you're more likely to lose weight. And when the studies have been done, what they've shown is that intermittent fasting, including the 5-2 diet, can help you lose weight, but not more than a standard calorie restricted diet. So again, it, there's nothing necessarily magical about it. Probably it helps people lose weight because they end up consuming fewer calories. Um, that said, as I say, this whole line of research is interesting. It may eventually yield some clues for certain people to eat in a certain way to help them uh, manage their weight more effectively. But right now, again, we hear a lot of hard and fast rules, you know, don't eat after seven o'clock, eat all your, you know, eat breakfast, don't eat breakfast. Uh, eats a bunch, bunch of small meals, uh, eat at these times. And, and, and so the truth is these hard and fast rules overstate, again, the certainty of the evidence. We don't have ironclad evidence to support these, even though 
sometimes these are, and often these are presented as though there is ironclad evidence. Yes. Now you mentioned calories, which is a beautiful segue into my next question. Let's talk about them. What are they? Do we need to count them? And if we do, will it help us with long-term maintainable weight loss? A few key words in there, Robert. <laughs> right. So calories are a unit of thermal energy and, and, uh, and they're obviously the way that we determine how fattening, quote unquote, we think a food might be, how it may affect our weight. Um, the truth, as I like to say, is that calories count, but counting calories often does not work. And one reason is that it's just simply it's very hard to do accurately. You know, we, it's very hard to do. So in the U.S., I can speak for the U.S., you have numbers on packages that tell you how many calories, but in, in, at least in the U.S., those can be inaccurate. Those can be off under law by up to 20%. So even if you see the number on the package, you don't necessarily know it's completely accurate. And never mind if a lot of the food we eat, whether we eat at home, we go to someone's house, we go to a restaurant, we have no idea how many calories. And then we, there are apps available where you can try to calculate it, but they're, they're, they can be very hard to use to deconstruct the food. So just doing it accurately is one problem. Um, so it's really hard to know with any accuracy. So, and also it's hard to know how many calories you need to burn to be an energy deficit. So that mean, that's dependent on how many calories you're burning uh, in your everyday activities, how many calories, what your metabolism is. Um, those, again, they're uh, online calculators and apps, but those are far from accurate as well. So if you don't know with any precision how many calories you're actually taking in and how many you're burning or need to burn, it's really hard to do the math to get that right. So that's one reason that counting calories is difficult. Another is simply that calories aren't the only factor when it comes to our weight. I talk about other things that matter, things like our genetics. We all know people that can eat a all the food they want and never with the people we hate and never gain an ounce. <laughs> And conversely, people that hardly eat anything and gain weight. And so genetics matter. And um, we also know our microbiome, that's the bacteria in our gut. There's more and more evidence about how that affects uh, the, the absorption of the calories we consume. Because you know, it's not just how many calories we consume, but it's how many of those calories are actually absorbed in our guts. And so the, the mix of microbes in our, in our guts may help, may determine how many of those calories we actually absorb. Um, and then, our, of course, our metabolism uh, and how dieting affects our metabolism. As we uh, lose weight, as we eat less and lose weight, our metabolism actually may slow, does slow down in many cases. And so that means that you have to eat fewer and fewer calories in order to keep losing weight. So metabolism matters. And, and there are other factors as well. But the point there is that calories are not the only factor. So this simplistic idea that, well, if you just cut calories, then you will lose weight. If you just count calories, you'll lose weight. Um, it takes what is essentially a very complex phenomenon and boils it down to a simple number. And there's just more to it than that. Yes, absolutely. And I have had clients in the past who have had some great success with, let's say, calorie counting, but then perhaps a few years later have gone back to revisit it and then are unable to perhaps lose the weight that they did lose originally or find it much more difficult too. And do, do you think that's you know something to do with um, you know metabolism and things like that as well? Absolutely, because our metabolism, uh, metabolism responds to what we're doing. So as I said, if we're actually losing weight, our metabolism will slow down because it's actually protecting us from starving, uh, protecting us from wasting away. And so, um, and that means it's harder to lose weight. You know, something else that I've, I've noted is that sometimes when people fixate on calories too much, they can end up making food choices that are not necessarily in their best, uh, best for their health. So, you know, you might look at the calorie count and find that some kind of a chocolate bar, a fudge bar has fewer calories than say nuts, but the nuts are actually, if you eat them in moderation, potentially a better option because they're going to fill you up more. 
they have more nutrients than the fudge bar, which is, has just simple carbohydrates, which can leave you feeling hungry 30 minutes after you eat it. So calories aren't necessarily the only or best determinant of what foods are going to be most filling, most nutritious. And so we have to look at the foods as a whole. We look at the fiber, we look at the sugar content, we look at the protein in addition to the calories. So just fixating on calories can sometimes be a misleading metric. Absolutely. So well said. I reckon all the, you know, the protein bars and things like that, they're, they're the biggest culprits of, uh, of, of calories and, and, and additions to people's diet that they just don't need if they sort of went more for the whole foods. I feel like they, they're normally the things that people go for. Like you said, protein bars, chocolate bars, all those right. sorts of things. Yeah. Um, now, what is your take on weight loss supplements, Robert? Do you, do you think they work? Do we need them? Or are they just another clever marketing tool, over-promising and under-delivering? You know, I, you know, first of all, let me say, I'm not opposed to supplements. I think supplements can be very, certain supplements can be effective for certain people for certain conditions. So uh, that said, though, unfortunately, weight loss supplements uh, overall are not effective. And I looked at a lot of the evidence for these. And what I found is that in many cases, the supplements, at least the ones sold in the U.S., I can speak for those, um, have a combination of ingredients. Uh, everything from caffeine to uh, coffee bean extract and, and all kinds of things. Uh, and it often you don't, it's hard to tell by looking at the label, what exactly they contain, what in what proportions and what amounts those uh, supplements contain. And if, and, and so even if you look at the individual ingredients, there's not great evidence that they can have a big effect um, at best. They can have, I think a small effect on weight. And again, when they're put in combination, who knows, because they haven't been tested. So I think when people do take supplements, over-the-counter supplements, at least I can speak for the U.S., um, they are taking a gamble because these supplements haven't been thoroughly tested. Um, often, at least in the U.S., again, they don't contain what's listed on the label. And uh, they can have side effects. Just because something is natural, quote-unquote, doesn't mean it's completely safe. And so people are taking a risk. And again, I understand the allure, similar to superfoods. You pop a pill and you lose weight. And so I get it and I understand why they're so popular, but I think that often they lead people astray. And, uh, and, and in some cases, again, this example can be harmful. I talk about studies in which people thought they were taking a supplement. In fact, it was a placebo. Uh, and those who took the supplement were less careful about their diets because they felt whether it was conscious or unconscious, they felt, well, I'm taking a supplement, so I don't need to worry as much about these foods that may be not so weight friendly. And so they found that those people were less careful about their food intake. And so they can have that effect, that unintentional effect as well. Yeah, that's so interesting. Now, just backtracking a little bit, I'm so glad that you mentioned symptoms of, uh, you know, such things like weight loss um, supplements and things like that. I'm doing a little bit of um, research. I work with some athletes and pre-workouts are really big thing over here in, in Australia at the moment. Do you guys sort of get around that as well in the US, Robert? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and the, the side effects of all of that, they're the things that it's almost like the unspoken. So, you know, there's lots of, um, you know, lots of very clever marketing giving us all these great benefits of a pre-workout, but it's the symptoms that are really wreaking havoc on people's health. You know, the things like insomnia and, you know, diarrhea, constipation, cramping, all these, you know, um, reduced gut microbiome, all that sort of stuff that's sort of coming up. And it's, I'm just so glad that you mentioned symptoms because that is a really important aspect of all supplementation, I think. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes people assume, 
just because, as I said, it's natural, it's completely safe and you won't have any side effects. And that's not true. Um, and, and I like to say the rules of biology apply that here, if something is strong enough to have some benefit, uh, it's for some people is likely to have side effects. And even if it doesn't have a benefit, it can still have side effects. And people have to be aware of that possibility that there are potential downsides when they try these things. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Now, Robert, what's your favorite myth when it comes to weight loss? <laughs> you know, there's so many, it's hard to pick one. You know, one, I, I guess if I had to pick one, I would say the idea that single foods or categories of foods are responsible for weight gain. So we've seen this, that, that, and it, we've sort of shifted from one to the villain to another. I have a whole chapter called pick your villain. And it's all about <laughs> this, about the different villains. So it was, first of all, it was fat, that fats are bad. Fats make you fat, don't eat dietary fat. And then it shifted to carbohydrates, you know, carbohydrates are the villain. Uh, and then since then it shifted, it's sort of themes on that it's gluten or it's sugar or it's, uh, you name it. Uh, and so what I like to say is that, you know, the, the danger in this idea is that every time we have a different villain, food companies flood the market with all kinds of products that are free of that villain. Well, but the problem is these products are not weight friendly and they're not health friendly. So all the fat free foods, what did they have? They had more carbohydrates, simple carbohydrates and sugars. And then the carb free foods have artificial sweeteners, um, which studies suggest are not necessarily better. Uh, when it comes to weight management or health, uh, that, uh, you know, that there's studies that link them to, to negative health effects. So eating all these processed foods with uh, artificial sugars that are low carb are not necessarily better. And so I think the problem is that people uh, end up eating more processed foods because the market is flooded with these. And that really, if you want to point to something that's the problem, that is one of the big problems that people eating more and more uh, foods with long lists of unpronounceable ingredients um, that, that research does show contribute to weight gain. Absolutely. And I've noticed too, probably in the last two to three years, let's say, that even the health food aisles of supermarkets, even health food stores, they've become overly flooded with packaged processed healthy foods. And I think right. that's a really interesting point to make as well that maybe you know just because you've visited the health food store or you've gone down the health food aisle in the supermarket it's not necessarily good for you <laughs> right absolutely and so the, the key there is um you know it's not about one constituent food it's about you know the overall diet the quality of your diet and it's trying to avoid whenever possible i know none of us can do it completely <laughs> but processed foods and packaged foods and eating whole foods instead yeah, absolutely, which uh, is a beautiful segue into my next question. It's time for the big reveal. So what actually works when it comes to weight management? So can you give us your top three health tips, Robert, when it comes to successful weight loss? I will. And, and I, your listeners are not going to be are going to find this not very surprising because these are things we hear about all the time. They're not uh, sexy or exciting or new, but the, they are science-based. And we know that these are the things that science show us can make a difference. So number one is eating a healthful diet. And what does that mean? That's the kind of diet we also know is consistent with good health, a largely plant-based diet, a whole foods diet that consists of things like um, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, beans, uh, fish, uh, lean meats, dairy, if you consume dairy, uh, eating those foods and minimizing the kinds of foods we just talked about, highly processed foods, uh, things like uh, sweets, uh, fried foods, packaged foods, chips, 
soda, those kinds of foods. Now, it doesn't mean you never eat those. It means it doesn't mean they're off limits because we know from restrictive diets that say never eat these foods, it does a trick on our brains and makes us want to eat those foods more. So it doesn't mean you never eat those, but it means over time, you eat more of the foods in the first category, the whole foods, and try to eat less of the foods in the other category. It is a process. It's not something anybody can do overnight who's been in the habit of eating a lot of processed foods, but it's something that I think uh, people do. And I did have done this myself when I was in college, I ate all kinds of processed foods and fried foods and over time and soda. And over time, I gradually reduced my intake of those foods. So it's something that people have to be patient with. But the beauty of this way of eating is that within the whole food categories, there are so many different foods you can choose from. So it's a matter of finding the, finding the vegetables, finding the fruits, finding the lean meats that you enjoy, that will sustain you, that will uh, fill you up and you'll enjoy eating. And so it takes some trial and error, but the, the great thing is you can tailor a diet that's going to work for you, that's going to be, fill you up and you're going to enjoy. And over time, taste buds do change and habits do change, but it's a matter of changing habits over time. And that's the approach when it comes to eating. As I say, that not only is good for your overall health, but also science shows can help you achieve a, a healthy weight and maintain that weight. I love it. Beautiful, fact-based and everything that we bang on about here at Need to Know Nutrition. I love the whole food foundation and it should be the foundation of everybody's diet. And like you said, we can't do it all the time, but we do know that restriction and deprivation really do breed obsession. And it's not the things that you do occasionally that matter. It's really the things that you do every day. So if you can have that whole food focus, you know, that that's the most important thing. If you can sort of use that for majority of your week, let's say. And the other thing too, Robert, is I reckon when you start listing out all those whole foods, some of that they're so delicious. You think, why, why, why haven't I had more of those in my diet? I'm definitely going to be including a few more of those in my diet. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, so, so, so if you want, I'll just run through the other two things quickly. So yes, if you, you ask for the top three. And oh, I'll, yes. The so number two would be exercise. And I'll just say here, uh, exercise is very important for keeping weight off. It's not so great when it comes to actually losing weight. Often it's held up as a way to lose weight. And unfortunately it doesn't burn the kind of exercise most of us do doesn't burn that many calories. So we shouldn't look to it necessarily to help us lose weight, but it is very important when it comes to maintaining weight, to keeping, to avoiding weight gain. So regular exercise, moving your body in some way is important for your overall health. It's crucial. I'm a big proponent of exercise. I think it's the closest thing we have to a fountain of youth. So everybody, I think in whatever way you can move your body should do that. And I think it's also a part of successful weight maintenance. So that's number two. And number three, I would say would be keeping a journal. I think it's very important to keep a food diary, to keep a food journal, just to make yourself more aware of what you're eating, because so often we eat and we're not aware. And it's not just what you eat. It's also how you're, how you're feeling when you eat, how you felt before and after you ate, where were you? Were you eating it at, at work? Were you eating in your car? Uh, were you eating with other people? Were you eating by yourself? Were you eating in front of the television? And so getting, getting that kind of information can help you go back and look and say, okay, what, what are the patterns and how can I change what I'm doing? Because if the first step to changing the way you're eating is gaining a greater awareness of it. And, and again, often, as I said, often we're just unaware of it. We just eat and don't think about it. So it helps us become more mindful and you don't have to keep the journal uh, permanently, but I think doing that when you start and perhaps when you're having a tough time, um, just, just gathering information about yourself and writing it down and going back and reviewing it can be extremely helpful to help change those habits. 
Absolutely. Well said. And I think too, that, that I've, I've also had clients in the past who have done, let's say a food diary or a food journal and didn't realize the kind of mindless snacking they were doing or the things they were consuming over a day, because it's different when you ask someone just to simply recall it verbally to them actually physically writing it down. So I think that's a really helpful information. And, and uh, I'm a very strong advocate for that as well, Robert, very well said. Now, um, I mean, I want to thank you for such an insightful and interesting interview, Robert. Now, if people want to purchase your book, and let me just say, I really think that they should. It's a great read. Um, Or follow you on socials. How can they find you? Well, they can go to my website, which is healthyskeptic.com. And there they can find out about this book and my other books. And it has links to Amazon. uh, Or they can go straight to Amazon. It's available on Amazon. Uh, also on social media, they can find me at uh, Robert Davis Healthy Skeptic on Facebook, as well as Healthy Skept, S-K-E-P-T on Instagram. And I would add also at my website, I have a number of short videos, so I invite people to go there to healthyskeptic.com on nutrition and other topics in which I bust all kinds of myths. Oh, it's so good and myth busting. I think we, we need more of it. I'm, I'm glad you're here, Robert. Thank you so much for your time and for your commitment to uncovering the truth when it comes to health and nutrition. You really are the perfect fit for this show, Robert. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>